there's a particular tension with cultural institutions between business and community. I think nonprofit theaters live in that tension in a very acute way, a very specific way. The Professional Association of Canadian Theaters has an annual conference. In 2018, it was held in Saskatoon. They change cities every year. And Vancouver theatre maker Marcus Youssef delivered the keynote address. In the 1990s, in Vancouver, a bunch of us were part of starting companies. Boca de Lupo, Conspiracy, Urban Inc., Electric Company, New World, Ruby Slippers, Savage Society, to some extent Pie and Rumble, they were a bit older, and others. We did so because there was no room for us. Things were pretty quiet in Vancouver, and the bigger organizations felt impenetrable. Maybe like they do to all artists. But they didn't just feel impenetrable. They felt like secrets. Like the folks running them at the time wouldn't tell us, or maybe just me, <laughs> how things actually worked. They played their cards really close to their chests. They behaved like corporations, polite on the outside, but like they had control over resources, they were afraid someone would take away from them if they were transparent about how they got them and what their underlying philosophy was. Later on in his speech, he goes on to say, And so, whatever our revenue pressures, it is critical that we shift the underlying philosophy and not behave like profit-driven corporations with secrets, like smog guarding his pile of treasure underneath Lonely Mountain. Sorry, that was a bit much, but, oh, you know. It was late. It was late when I wrote that. Marcus invokes the C word, corporations, and the lack of transparency and generosity that we associate with these for-profit entities. I asked the Arts Club's current executive director, Peter Cathy White, about what he makes of this perception of the company in the 90s. The walls would sponge in. Every, every time it rained, a pipe would burst and leak in our, uh, wouldn't burst, but it would definitely flood in our uh, marketing office. Uh, you know, there, we, there was just nothing got fixed because there wasn't any money for that. So, uh, and the money went on stage, you know, that's where the money went. It didn't go in, you know, making the place comfortable for people to work in or, you know, sit back on some large reserve. So, you know, we, we sure as hell were not sitting on a pot of gold. I also asked current artistic director Ashley Corcoran to consider this impression of the Arts Club. She started the job in 2018 and has come to hear the company's story through those who've been there for a long while before her. Well, it hasn't just been a simple, like, if you were to graph it, it's not just a simple line graph that starts small and grows big. There's been a lot of peaks and valleys. Um, through the years uh, in terms of um, uh, when there was financial strength, when there were times when the theatre company was almost bankrupt. Something's telling me this is an important bit of history to grapple with. There were times when the Arts Club was, you know, very, very, in a very financially dire circumstance. As Peter Cathy White put it to me, for a long time, the Arts Club was one bad musical away from real trouble. This episode is about the difference between the inside and the outside, what we show and what may be seen when we pull back the curtain, not just as it pertains to a cultural institution and the community it finds itself in, but also the perceptions and lived realities of artists. How do we make artists be as like welcomed, as possible to the organization? How do we make their experience 
the best possible. Something we've started doing during this pandemic, just starting this fall, is doing surveys with artists after they've worked with us, anonymous surveys, to find out what their experience was really like. Because if we want to move to a more collaborative, more responsive, more generous system, one that allows us all to be more human in our work, then I believe it is also our responsibility to do that. Be more human. I'm Andrew Kushner, and this is Something Else. When you know who you are. I want to start by considering a specific experience of the inside-slash-outside dichotomy, the theme of this episode. What does it mean to be an artist trying to navigate both sides? And how does that Margaret Mead adage indeed ring true? Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Okay, uh, well, I, I, before coming to, to Canada, I was living in um, Los, Los Angeles. This is performer Marcus Mosley. I had been a Christian missionary for about 10 years of my life. Um, and... At the end of that time, I, I came to the realization that this was no longer something I wanted to pursue. Theologically, I was having issues with, with where they were, where evangelicals were going at that time, as well as also dealing with my own sexuality. And so I was, you know, I think I was working out trying to kind of come out of the closet. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Marcus is one of the members of what he lovingly calls Vancouver's Black Pack. For years now, he's been singing with his group, The Sojourners. You're listening to their music now. You could wonder if this gospel trio was anchored in his evangelical beginnings. But it's actually much more about reinvention, protest, and education. We were very much more connected to the social justice, resistance, protest side of gospel music. Mm. So we, we always saw ourselves as a political group. Mm. So it, it's, uh, it's using these pieces of, of the past to move the present, to shape, help shape and reshape the present. Yes, to shine light on what is, to bring it in now, and um, to show that a, 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 a narrative in Canada, particularly to have three black men standing on stage singing these songs and telling these stories of their experience. Marcus arrived in Vancouver in the mid-80s, having been invited by dear friends to come up from California. The city spoke to him. Exiles from our family, some of us um, just wanted to get away from the craziness in the United States and come here um, um, 
Some came here on tour with other groups. And yeah, for black performers, um, Vancouver, one of the things that Vancouver offered was there was a real love for R&B music. And, and so being black and being able to sing R&B was, an, uh, was a ticket to getting work. Black music has always been an inroad into white culture because white culture is always drawn from and stolen from black music. Yeah. Not just in Canada, but in, you know, internationally and specifically in North America. Uh, and there be the love for R&B music and then the love for Motown. Marcus circled around the flagpole to keep renewing his stay in Canada. He liked it in Vancouver, found it easier to breathe, started to make a living and a reputation as a singer. And eventually, he got a phone call from a fellow and formidable performer. I got a phone call one day from Sybil Thrasher saying, Marcus, have you heard of this show, Ain't Misbehaving? I said, yeah. And she said, well, um, Blue Man Kuma is going to be leaving the show and we're looking for a replacement. I know you can do this. I had never done theater. Well, well not entirely true. Done He'd done some street theater as a missionary in Argentina, in Israel and Palestine, in Germany and Vietnam. And of course, growing up in the evangelical Pentecostal church, you learn performance as well. <laughs> um, just because it's, it's, a, it's very much about theater in, in, in those kinds of churches, if you get my drift. <laughs> Marcus Books Ain't Misbehavin'. A show based on the music of Fats Waller that became a massive hit in the Arts Club's 1984 season and just kept running and running and running. When I asked Marcus what made the show so special, he says, quote, an all black cast. Literally uh, and figuratively kept the Arts Club in the black for a, a good long time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I actually heard a story from one of the cast members that uh, they had shown up early uh, one day uh, getting to get ready for the next show and they walked into the arts club office and uh, Bill was Bill, Bill Millard was in the middle of kind of celebrating with the office crew there uh, depositing I guess the one millionth dollar of profit from the show or something like that I was uh, immediately thrust into the public eye uh, uh, because of being a member of that cast so it gave it definitely gave me the uh, uh, launch to my career Dennis Simpson who came up in the last episode was part of the cast at the time as was Lavina Fox and it's so funny because I, I remember it, I, you know I thought it was going to be like maybe three or four months right but it just kept getting the um, held over held over and, and I remember after a couple of years I was like is this all I'm ever going to do <laughs> <laughs> and I, oh, and one time Muhammad Ali came to see the show. He was in town pr promoting a car called the Viper, and he and the um, promoters brought him to see our show. And they brought him backstage, and so we got to take pictures and meet him. And he was so cool. He was that was that was really neat. And, and me and Lovey and Sybil took him to uh, took them to uh, Richards on Richards, <laughs> but. It was the weirdest thing because we walked into Richard's, got a table, 
And then all of a sudden it was like everything stopped. I, like when they spotted Muhammad Ali and all of a sudden a mass of people started coming towards us and we had to leave, couldn't stay because he was going to get mobbed. It was incredible. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that was really, really interesting witnessing that. Yeah, he's like, no, his, his uh, promoters are like, no, we got to go. I was like, oh, damn. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so that's what it's like to be a superstar. You know? <laughs> what Did he enjoy the show? Oh, he loved the show. He was great. Yeah. And I got him to sign a $1 bill for me. And you think I can find it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Kicking myself. Here we are, out of cigarettes, holding hands in your You just got really sweet there for a second yeah i just i'm putting the mic like in my mouth almost it's <laughs> but it's i don't know what that's really weird maybe I'll, this you know, is omari newton one, two, actor two, playwright two, and as of this past year a new staff member at the arts club omari hails from montreal originally and arrived in vancouver in 2008 unlike marcus mosley who found a lot of hope in his earliest gigs in the city Omari's first experience as an actor in Vancouver resulted in him quitting acting on stage for the better part of a decade. Here's what happened. Omari had been cast in a show, and during rehearsals was told by its white director that his being a black man was not relevant to the production. Even though Omari was playing a black character, he was told by this director, I really don't want to focus on race. And so, in an art form, where artists are constantly being asked to bring their full selves to the work they do, Omari was essentially being asked to hold himself back. I remember being on stage one night and thinking to myself, I would rather be working at Starbucks than selling myself out in this way. It felt like erasure? Yeah, yeah, it felt like erasure. It felt um, just insulting, really. I mean, I... They saw, in my opinion, or this director saw my culture and my identity as just something to be avoided. The conversation about race and diversity had not evolved to the point where it had now. It drives you away for 10 years. It drove me away as an actor. He became laser-focused on breaking into film and TV instead, and found a home in a number of series that got renewed for multiple seasons. He found big success elsewhere, and what theatre lost, and it did lose something, film and TV gained. Omari says to me in an email, quote, Adversity is the norm for a black man navigating the world. I embrace it. It shapes us. And he didn't give up on theatre altogether. I should say that. Determined to create opportunities for black experiences and voices, ones that didn't reiterate the harms he'd experienced, Omari started to write. That bad theater experience, that awful theater experience, also ignited his inner activist. It definitely soured me on institutions. And my takeaway was, I will not work with directors, and particularly white directors, on issues dealing with race, unless I know and trust them and know that they will see me fully as a person. Sadly, this struggle has a storied history. Marcus Mosley ran into his own set of problems with some of the projects that came after Ain't Misbehavin' at the Arts Club. There was a show called The Black and Gold Review. The second iteration of The Black and Gold Review 
the director uh, had us basically do a open the show with sort of a minstrel show sketch, which didn't go over too well with the black community. Mm. <laughs> you know, we, we had the straw hats and the, you know, the, the line in the front and we sang, you know, those songs, you know, you know, I'm Alabama bound, you know, those minstrel shows songs. And uh, we did Nick's one thing. He wanted us, we, we had a young guy join us by the name of Chance Perry, who was a dancer. And uh, so the director wanted to feature him. And so there was discussion of possibly recreating an African village, actually with the big stew pot in the middle of the stage. And he was going to come out of this pot and dance. And we're like, uh, no, that's a line too far to go. This same director in one of Marcus's auditions. He actually said to me in, in one of the um, auditions, can't you be more black? And I, 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 I thought I didn't say anything because I was new here. I was on a temporary visa. I wanted to work, and so I didn't want to make waves. I just I let it go over me. But I, I to this day, I wish I had have had the presence of mind to say, uh, what shade? I think part of the spirit of the time was, let's just work and get get long, get along, get paid, and. And, and further our career and, and speak to it in ways that we can that maybe aren't so confrontative, con- confrontational. Like my friend Dennis Simpson, he was very, very good friends with the director and had known him for a number of years and kind of just said, you know, he, did, he didn't mean it that way. And at that time, we didn't have words like microaggression or, you know, we didn't, we didn't have that. You know, we, we, we didn't have those kinds of terms for it. Um, you know, but I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, if somebody really came off wrong, we would, we would call them on it. Now, some 40 years later, Omari speaks to these issues clearly and directly. The Arts Club has not only commissioned him and his wife, Amy Lee Lavoie, to write a play, but they've also hired him as community liaison someone who is working on enhancing inclusion at the company, fostering relationships with the professional theatre community, and making recommendations on how to dismantle barriers within and without the organization. Working at the theatre is a big shift. He'd always felt outside the arts club. I was also really poor when I first moved to Vancouver. Yeah, right, I know, and, uh, and that is a steep ticket price. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and then and then it's also you know this. I don't want to say stigma, but as a black person navigating spaces that are historically and predominantly white, sometimes it's like that's it's just not always a fun evening, you know. Well, if I may be candid, the impression for myself and a lot of at the time young artists of color was this is an elitist white supremacist organization, and I don't say mm. white supremacist. I you know I didn't think they were holding Klan rallies in there, but I thought it was like. You know, white supremacists in that same, in that classic passive sort of way, where just we just weren't a consideration for them, and I just and and you know that's fine. I've, I've said this many times. I've never understood any artist, but in particular artists of color, who have a burning desire to work at institutions that don't respect them. And this is not an issue exclusive to the arts club, though every theater certainly has its distinct iteration. Many theaters across the country have to contend with the systems of power that have allowed them to grow, 
often at the exclusion of vast portions and cultures within our society. Omari works for the Arts Club now. Does he think change is possible? And I think when I was younger, I probably had more of that sentiment of burning these places down, and maybe there's still value in that, you know? But the other part of me goes, you have this infrastructure that's already in place, and, you know, a theater is not the walls of the land where it sits, right? It's the people who who are involved in the decisions made and who control the money and control the programming who make a theater. Omari believes in the team at the Arts Club, and he wants more people included in this art form he loves, more artists of color, in spaces that don't make their color and lived experience a problem, but instead, as my research and podcast assistant Priti Daliwal puts it, quote, spaces that allow BIPOC artists to just be human and express their craft as they wish to, in the same way any other artist is afforded. Omari staunchly believes that a regional theater's stages should reflect the city that they live in. And although the Arts Club never started as a regional, it has become one, and it has to grow into that responsibility. As part of his docket, Omari spoke with every department at the company, he was clear and direct in his communication. You realize that to a lot of people in the community, the Arts Club is perceived as a white supremacist elitist organization. And a lot of people were stunned when I said that. Now, what I, what I should also add is there were some other people who reached out to me via email and thanked me for saying it and said, you know, I'm glad that that has been put on the table because some people don't realize that. But I think it's, it's easy once you're inside an organization to lose sight of how you're perceived by the outside. I can imagine some listeners of this podcast finding this shocking. And I can imagine others nodding their heads. Are we finding this history hard to be with? It would be understandable. I find it hard. And I find it necessary. I think there's a lot of wounds, particularly from artists of color, uh, from working at the Arts Club or feeling dismissed by the Arts Club and now to be, for lack of a better term, someone on, on the inside. One, I'm constantly in a state of, of checking myself to make sure I, I haven't been totally co-opted by the system that I'm now working with. And I also I'll have to empathize with people who are still on the outside, who are feeling the way more in line with the way I might have felt when I was 28 or 29. I, I get it. Marcus Mosley tells me we're seen through their lens, through their, their lens, through their prism, and we're not so evidently, so obviously, we're not truly seen many times. Because when they really see us, um, it means they have to do some self-examination and they have to do some changing uh, mm. to see us really. In the fall of 2020, in a rare instance of live theatre happening in Canada, one of the very few instances of it, Omari directed a play at the Arts Club called No Child by Nilaja Sun. You know, I... It's funny, I got really emotional uh, on the night of our preview, and I'm actually I'm sort of feeling it now. It's kind of funny. I got really emotional because... You know, as I mentioned before, I took a 10-year hiatus for the from theater because at one point I just didn't feel like it was a place for me and that my who I was was 
wanted in the theater and sitting in this dark theater doing this play this beautiful play it's a beautiful story by a woman of color and I, I had these two talented women of color who were running it and my my artistic team was this diverse mix of ethnicity of gender uh, and, and I'm talking we had older experienced white artists with younger super gifted up-and-coming recent graduates and I got really emotional because I was like this is this is the theater that I want to do. Omari tells me that his journey as an artist in Vancouver is not a tale of woe, but rather one of resilience. In an email after our interview, he writes, quote, Racism perpetuated against BIPOC people almost always causes a greater loss for the aggressors. He then quotes the great poet Kendrick Lamar. We gun be all right. When you know who you are and where you come from, when you're grounded in yourself, there are sometimes those wonderful moments when there is a, an awakening, uh, a realization, and a shift. And I think that's one of the power, that's part of the power of not just theater, but part of the power of a performance period for black artists when you know who you are, if you stand grounded in who you are as a person and true to yourself, you can help help bring about that kind of shift in people. Act two. There's no business like show business. Now, I hope you'll bear with me. I'll be coming back to the art and the artists, I promise. But I want to spend a moment talking business. Like finances and boards and office dynamics. You know, all that stuff that happens behind those doors marked administration. The stuff we never get to see or hear about. Please, 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 don't press stop on your players. I think it will intrigue you. I I certainly got swept up in it. And it really all stemmed from that speech Marcus Youssef gave, the one I shared at the beginning. And I asked him about it. I think you could say that, you know, the re, you know, the, the whole society has become more corporate. I mean, I think the theater, you know, it, it, the the art world generally has become more corporate because the culture has become more corporate in the last 30 years. I mean, we're in This is Marcus Youssef, playwright, performer, and the former artistic director of New World Theater. Actually, he's now officially referred to as the company's emerging elder. Got to love that. I got an email today from somebody going, you know, you know, kind of lecturing me a little bit about like, do you understand how power works? Like I look around and I go just, it's just people who know each other and they're the only people who get to do things. And I'm like, yeah, like I get it. Like, and that's how we felt too. And, and, and and to some extent that's kind of generational, like, you know, the arts club and bill were very loyal to their people. And, and, you know, that, you know, in a way I get that. Um, And Marcus is skilled at holding multiple vantage points on this issue. But he does tell me about an insularity that he perceived at the arts club over many years. A clubbiness. But generally, my experience was a pretty inward-looking place. Like, they were never really... I didn't feel like they were super interested in, like, big conversations about what we do and how we do it. 
You know what I mean? Like it was yeah. more like was more like this. You know, we know what we do. We know what we do, and we know who we do it with, and we're just gonna do it. We have an audience, and we're and they were really focused on expanding. Like they were really from the outside anyway. It really seemed like it was all about expanding. From the outside, he says, it made me curious when he said it. Was that indeed the focus from within the organization? I ask Marcia Sibthorpe, who was alongside Bill for his many decades at the theater. Can I ask you, what's the happiest you ever saw him when it comes to all those decades with the company? Oh, God. Oh, that's... There are too many. There are just too many. And... It's like that old thing about you remember the bad times better than the good. But I certainly, when each theater opened, that was pretty ecstatic. I don't think we can blame anyone for being overjoyed at building a physical space for an ethereal and arguably marginalized art form. It's a huge and deeply stressful achievement and one that has the high potential to provide generational benefit. Scarcity and precarity are realities of the theatre. I think we know that now in this pandemic as much as ever. But the question is, with the Arts Club, did things get too big too fast? And at what cost? In 1979, the Arts Club added the Granville Island stage. My podcast series doesn't delve deep into the establishing of this space, but it was a big deal. By some accounts, the company had been squatting in an abandoned warehouse on the island in the 70s before making a formal bid for the warehouse that would one day become the theater. I mean, I have this image of, you know, Berlin artists, you know, occupying, uh, you know, an abandoned building in the middle of nowhere. And it... Am I am I right to understand that you you were sort of there uh, covertly? No, we were there with permission. Okay, so according to Bill, it wasn't so Berliny, but when it had been announced that one fifth of the island was to be devoted to arts and culture, the Arts Club put in a bid. One of the companies they were in competition with, yep, the Vancouver Playhouse. I suppose if you can, again, cast your mind back, you get the news that your bid is successful. I'm asking Bill here about when he got the good news about securing a warehouse right beside the public market on the island. Is it a phone call or how do you find out? Uh, yeah, but yeah, it, yeah, it probably was a phone call. And uh, you're thrilled, you're daunted, you're... You know, what's your headspace when expansion uh, becomes real? Well, all of that. It it was. Um, it seemed to me, uh, you know, that if I was going to be able to hang on to the people, uh, you know, that were that were working uh, at the arts club, it would be impossible to continue paying people the paltry amounts that I was paying them in a 200-seat theater. That really, that was not, um, you know, what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. If we didn't get this, uh, I would probably move on and others would move on as well. The Granville Island stage really upped the Arts Club's capacity to produce work in the city. 
subscriber numbers nearly doubled instantly. They opened the review stage shortly after that. You've got a number of sizable hits in the 80s that make these thriving theater venues. We've got Talking Dirty by Sherman Snookull, It's Snowing on Salt Spring by Nicola Cavendish, Ain't Misbehavin', A Closer Walk with Patsy Cline. And then in 1991, the Arts Club loses the Seymour Street Theater. But by 1997, they had secured, remodeled, and opened another space. Not an intimate black box theater for new work, as Bill had long hoped. You know, a kind of replacement for the Seymour Street. Quite the opposite. A 600-seat venue poised for things like Vancouver's annual big musical. It would retain its original name, the Stanley. And they snatched it from an actual corporation vying for the space. The Gap Clothing Company. Seriously, can you imagine? Anyway, the Arts Club managed to bring new life to a beloved and storied space on Granville Street, a former cinema. But it was hard won. The Stanley cost $9.5 million to uh, put into play. This is Philip Bernard, former board member of the Arts Club at that time. He's speaking with my brilliant research and podcast assistant, Preeti Dhaliwal. Vancouver City didn't give us funding. What they gave us, believe it or not, was 40,000 square feet of of, um, high-rise space. We were given 40,000 square feet of density that we were able to sell to Peter Wall and the Wall Center downtown. And so they bought that 40,000 square feet for a million point two, I think it was. And that was one of the major breakthroughs for us on funding. Philip is referring to air rights, or as I came across online, one's capacity to sell the sky. The Arts Club got wise to Vancouver's real estate game, but that didn't get it out of the weeds. You see, even Bill admits that fundraising wasn't his strong suit. And the company's earliest business model was holding fast, even with all this growth. It was about the public buying those tickets. Uh, Yes, it was nice to get um, government grants of whatever amount, but the the theatre needed to survive um, from, from ticket sales. But you can't build new buildings on ticket sales alone. And Bill wasn't inclined to create a big, powerful fundraising board. His years at the Vancouver Playhouse had made him cautious about powerful boards. So I was very um, hesitant about giving my board that kind of uh, responsibility or power. And I thought fundraising, if they were out there fundraising, uh, they might expect to have a say. In, in what we were putting on stage. Uh, and so there was, a, there was an inclination to, um, if we we're going to do fundraising, we should do it on our own. And the upshot of this was a hefty financial hole to climb out of. Bill's talents for stretching a penny was renowned. Bill was the cheapest person in the whole city. He squeaked before he coughed up a penny. That's longtime patron Robert Bennett from episode two. But the point is that even Bill's capacity to scrimp and save, to use both sides of the paper, as it were, weren't going to tackle the company's deficits. 
What's more, the pressures of operating the Stanley resulted in a restructuring of the company leadership model. Here's where things get really interesting. Former board member Philip Bernard again. Because at the time when we started back in the, the, the mid-90s, uh, the Arts Club, we are just adding a general manager to the artistic directors, uh, you know, as a, uh, a duo. Before that, Bill Miller was, of course, the both the uh, manager and the general manager and the uh, artistic director, which when we took on the Stanley, it um, that, that that was just going to be too much. It was, you know, because you're now going to go from uh, you know, seven plays a year to 14 or or so you needed to strengthen the management. So that uh, one of the biggest jobs we had uh, during my board time was matching Bill up with somebody who he'd believe in. <laughs> so that that's when we hired we hired a gentleman and then that didn't work out. And then we hired Howard Jang. Howard Jang would stay on with the company for 14 years and would go on to become a director of the Simon Fraser University Woodward's Cultural Unit. He's now a VP at the Banff Centre for Arts and Creativity. But there was a gentleman before him, a name that doesn't appear in any of the storytelling around the company online, be it the theatre's Wikipedia page, website, or elsewhere. I'm going to respect that point of anonymity, which I intuit is best for everybody, but I did want to hear more about what happened. Uh, he lasted just under two years. Uh, eventually, uh, we decided to part our ways. Um, we, we didn't get along, as uh, didn't see eye to eye on certain things. Uh, so then Howard Jang was hired and uh, he and I worked really well together. And this, I don't know if this came up in that very first group you know, company meeting we had on Zoom, or if it's been in a subsequent conversation with Ashley, but she mentioned that, was was there some effort to um, sort of unseat you as artistic director at that time? Uh, well, yes. Now, Bill doesn't mention this to me when I interview him, but what I hear from multiple sources is that Bill found a fax, like from a fax machine, fax a piece of paper that tipped him off to the new general manager's plan. That plan was to get the board to vote on Bill's removal. Imagine coming across that fax, the luck of that, holding it in your hands, a secret plot brought to light. And you've been running this company for 25 years. I felt that the whole uh, GM thing was a betrayal of Bill. I, you know, I felt even then... Um, Stephanie Hargraves had, coordinated know, the fundraising for the Stanley and went on to become head of casting at the Arts Club me. under Bill. Uh, I thought the whole thing was a betrayal and, uh, and suggested a, a lack of confidence on behalf of the board. Uh, and, you know, kind of in hindsight, um, I, I, I guess, really what they were trying to do was to... Um, 
lighten his load a bit and take some things off his plate. But Bill didn't give very much of it up, and he, he well, he much of it he he, he was negotiating actors well actors contracts till till he retired. Um, which is very uncommon for an AD of, of a company of that size. As Stephanie puts it, Bill couldn't trust others not to, quote, give away the farm. He'd weathered lean times before with the company. He was marked by the Vancouver Playhouse's struggles, which he knew well. For his staff and the artists he was loyal to, he wanted to stay the course as he saw it. But there was mounting opposition. But yeah, it was. It, I think it was a difficult. Um, it was a difficult time for him, uh, and um, yeah, it definitely felt uh, that the board was. You know, that there was a lack of confidence, and the board was not um, was not supporting him. What was the competing vision at that time? How would you characterize your your vision versus his vision? Well, I mean, my vision was, of course, carrying on what I'd always felt, you know, supporting the local community, uh, doing new work, um, you know, a, a, a programming an eclectic uh, choice of, of shows. Um, so it wasn't like my vision was all that radically different. I think he and the board chair at the time and he brought in an assistant or associate. Yeah, I think they thought that I was uh, old school and, you know, they should be running the theater in a different way. And um, uh, so started to meddle. But they were a little obvious in what they were trying to do. And I um, enlisted... Uh, you know, maybe they felt that I wasn't up to the task of the Stanley Theatre. Stanley Theatre had just opened, right? So, um, you know, it was a new new ball game, as it were. But I enlisted support of some loyal board members and uh, actors like Janet Wright, who was very vocal about it. Uh, and um, he was, you know, he realized that this wasn't going to work. And so he was sort of eased out. Crisis averted, it seems. Or maybe all these years later, it's just not worth getting into the details of battles lost and battles won. You know, I, I, I think it was hurtful for him. Yeah. Um, but, he, you know, he plowed on. He got his work done. And um, uh, because he wasn't going to give up the business end, which, uh, you know, I don't know if they thought that he was burning the candle at both ends. Um, but yeah, you know, he, uh, he persevered and, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he, he, he succeeded. And did you ever get nervous that, uh, that indeed you would, um, you know, lose, lose the steering wheel of the company? I don't think nervous is the word. I knew it very well from my experience working at the Playhouse that if the executive director slash general manager and artistic director don't get along, that just, um, you know, uh, ferments a toxic atmosphere and, and, you know, you have to have an atmosphere of being able to discuss them uh, with respect and, you know, make sure you're able to move forward. Again, when you've been, when you've been at the steering wheel for that many years and you've navigated the ups and downs and you've really internalize the survival of the company. Yeah, you can't afford um, for it to screw up. 
Or as Catherine Shaw put it to me, after all, she ran Studio 58 at Langara College for 35 years, so she knows a thing or two about longevity. Bill was a very determined individual, and I think the fact that he was there for the long haul, and he had a very specific vision, and he just stuck to it, and, you know, kind of weathered everything. I spent a lot of time in the 90s... um uh, and into the 2000s, <laughs> reading books about how to manage companies. Because I realized, you know, I had no business training. I mean, my dad was a businessman, but mm-hmm. apart from that, uh, I had to, in a sense, um, one, once we had Granville Island and once we had, you know, particularly when we were running three theaters, I had to learn a bit about uh, running a business. Growing pains. Painful growing. I don't bring these things up to the surface to air dirty laundry or to rebuff Marcus's impressions of the theatre through the 90s or nullify how the arts club has historically related to its ecology. I don't think I have the full picture. But I suppose I'm deeply fascinated by the multiple perspectives shared with me and how they meet. Had the Arts Club been in a less vulnerable place in the 90s and early noughts, might they have been able to look outward more, to engage differently with their ecology? And had its struggles been more well-known, would the company's survivalist nature have been more understandable? Does more transparency between the inside and outside help? It's so challenging with a large organization. And this is not lost on artists and leaders like Marcus Youssef. It's tricky because the people running these organizations, the bigger organizations, like are under massive pressure, especially when they're being driven by like real business kind of like, you know, the boards are challenging because the boards don't know much about what we do and how we do it. For the record, the Arts Club did bounce back after this difficult era in the late 90s to mid noughts. As Peter Cathy White put it, they were only one bad musical away from real trouble. They were also one good musical away from solid ground, along with a revamping of their ticketing system and other business innovations. He asked me what they had programmed in the 2006-07 season, the one he attributes to writing the ship. You got Beauty and the Beast that year. Oh, there we go. There, there we go. That was, you know, that was 2005, 2006. Yeah, how could I forget? Yeah, uh, the first time we did Beauty and the Beast, uh, it was a real... Uh, yeah, game changer for us. Yes. And we did it for the next four to five years, I think. Huh. Christmas, built a bit of Christmas tradition around it. It was a big game changer to get out of the famine. Yes. Act three, a tricky dance. Yes, yes. Um, I came to... Um, Canada in 98, I moved from Bombay, yeah. So my first impression of the city actually was back in Bombay. I saw this, um, I think it was like a travel and tourism package uh, or uh, something like that. And I saw this uh, wonderful um, image of Stanley Park and it was extremely misleading because it was bright and sunny. Playwright and novelist Anosh Irani knows to start with a zinger. He traveled to Canada with a singular dream, to become a writer. 
And here's the thing, prior to getting onto that plane and flying across the Pacific, he'd never really written much. He couldn't afford New York, so he set his sights on the creative writing program at the University of British Columbia. His ascent as a writer would be swift after that. He was full of stories, and he needed to get them out into the world. I started writing not from a place of nostalgia or homesickness, but from a, a, a place of being displaced. And I hope to transmit that disturbance to the reader or audience so that they uh, get uh, challenged, you know, and and wake up. And and for me, that's what theatre is about. It's It's about drawing people in and then sort of punching them in the stomach. Anosh talks about the body a lot. The stomach, in this instance. Later, he tells me that a good play rearranges your kidneys and guts. And I'm reminded that his first play for the Arts Club had a notable organ on stage. So this was The Macca King was a play about a eunuch on, on, a, on, a, on a, you know, search for, you know, his missing penis. I, I think that that's probably an oversimplification of the plot. Maybe. But I was told by multiple sources that there was indeed a six-foot-tall penis puppet jumping around on stage. One person called it a dream penis. Anoshirani had delivered his first script while interning at the arts club, helping Bill sort out his play library. I remember when I started working at the arts club a few weeks into that, it was probably the first time I felt I was walking on the ground in Vancouver. It was the first time I felt I found a home. When I started to feel like I, I belonged here. He would ask Bill, do you want to keep this play or throw it away? And the upshot of that question would be this rich discussion with Bill about theatre, plays, and theatre making. This process of vetting scripts would have been a fascinating one to witness. Based on his programming, it's pretty clear that Bill's taste was an eclectic one, that it defied obvious patterns. He was the common denominator, and he'd spent decades growing up alongside his audience, getting to know them, both satiating and stretching them as he saw fit. Kim Collier is a director and founder of The Electric Company. They created a theatre-film hybrid show called Tear the Curtain for the Stanley Theatre. It was an arts club commission. He's like, you know, keep going. He goes, uh, I don't get it yet, but, you know, you guys are the electric company and I trust you and just keep going. And uh, I don't know that if I've ever had another artistic director who was just so, like, he just supported us. He didn't feel like he needed to see a safe product or safe production coming together. Kim is of Marcus Youssef's generation of Vancouver artists, those in the 90s and early aughts trying to find a way to make a meaningful living in theatre on the West Coast. And she has lots of positive things to say about her engagement with the company when it finally happened. Her perspective is also informed by having been resident artist at the Canadian Stage Company for a number of years, one of Toronto's big theatres. She knows what it feels like on the inside of these massive theatre companies. The curatorial forces, you know, as we know, are balancing against those, those um, strong business practice and trying to find, you know, a beautiful balance of risk and the frontier and innovation. 
uh, while maintaining a healthy and stable core of uh, reaching the audiences that are your your base and foundation of of strength. Um, it's a really, 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 really um, tricky dance. We want to make sure that our nonprofit publicly funded companies have an artistic mandate, not a commercial mandate. So I'm thinking a bit about, um, you know, you can't have your theater become separate from the, the struggles or the suffering or the, the deeply human, you know, questions of our day and all days. Um, and so this is a, a tricky dance. And I think Bill at the Arts Club tried to do that. And, and Kim explains to me how, perhaps more than any other company in the entire country, Bill would leverage musicals and more crowd-pleasing fare to finance premieres of brand new Canadian plays and more so-called experimental works. And I think that's good business practice. What's more, Kim speaks to the value of our larger theatres, not only for the work they provide, and the Arts Club is the largest single non-profit employer of artists in all of BC, but also what these institutions do to the broader social imagination. When you have an institution, it kind of defends the importance of art within larger culture, you know, because for those who don't understand it and live and breathe it, and um, it's maybe easier to understand the funding coming into an institution, and that institution being there defends the place within the larger government budgets or other to um, and all of the drip down um, effect from there to all the other smaller indie experimental work that comes under. But it's possible that when you lose the institution, you lose the protection of, of the value of defending art and its, and its revenue sources within larger culture. What I'm hearing in this is that our bigger theaters keep theater as an art form on the map for governments and the broader public. They underline that theatre is a thing in this country, a thing that requires funding and support and protection as part of our national culture and storytelling. It's not just about who comes, it's also about those who are not coming. Yeah, that's right. Um, whether, you, and, whether you partake or not, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and that's why, you know, yeah, it's, they're, they're important, I think. You know, and then it's trying to figure out if you're running those institutions about how to make them as porous as possible, as relevant as possible, as current as possible. Anush had shared with Bill a short story of his called The Matka King. Bill said it would make a good play and told Anush that he'd read the first draft if one ever came about. Over 10 days, Anosha's Christmas break during his interning at the Arts Club, he pens the first draft of his play. And as promised, Bill reads it, penis, puppet and all. What will audiences think? Nothing. In fact, once he decided to program the play, um, and when we were in rehearsals, he encouraged me to go even darker at one moment. He said, I think you're holding back. And that's not the perception that people have of Bill. Anush tells me about one of the previews of the show, a remarkable moment. The beginning of act two, you know, there's uh, softer intermission. And when the lights come on, Top Rani, the main characters, uh, on a swing and the words are, if you think about it, from the time we are born, we are all prostitutes. From the time we are born. 
and this is what the character says and there was this couple caucasian couple in front of me a man and woman i'm assuming they were husband and wife and the man sort of told his wife that listen i i can't see this i i i want to go and he got up and the wife held his hand and pulled him back down in his seat and said i want to stay i want to watch this and that was a huge compliment for me because if you think about it that is exactly what happens inside of us as one human being when we watch compelling theater or when we read uh, a novel that we really like we want to stay but we want to leave and this was this helped me understand that my writing was working how do you feel about the word experimental applied to your theater you know i i don't know what that word means um because w- what is experimental um i i don't know what that means uh what's what could be experimental about my plays is simply the content and the perspective but that's not experimental that's natural you know that's how it should be we should be uh, looking at new ways to view the world we should be uh putting characters on stage who who challenge us who wake us up and um you know whose journey whose transformative journey on stage in a way transforms our understanding of human nature i mean there's nothing experimental about that um that's what playwrights like tennessee williams and arthur miller and you know be, that's what they've been doing do you think the the audience at the arts club is underestimated absolutely now i hope it doesn't sound like i'm building a case against musicals I love musicals actually. So much so, I'd love to quote one of my favorites. In the second act of Sunday in the Park with George, we get this Stephen Sondheim lyric. If you feel a sense of coalition, then you never really stand alone. If you want your work to reach fruition, what you need's a link with your tradition and of course a prominent commission. Commerce and art. among the big riddles of this episode whether it's due to being on the outside of the establishment or being firmly grounded in your own experience and community and wanting to create a space for it artists like Marcus Youssef and Kim Collier helped Vancouver's independent theater scene blossom New World Theater The Electric Company Urban Inc Rumble Theater Theater Conspiracy there are so many so many companies whose existence and thriving are the fruits of artists finding a way no matter what it's what artists do artists like Marcus Mosley and now Omari Newton found a way to be in relationship with the company with the arts club it wasn't always easy and often it was and is far from that theaters across the country have an exceptional opportunity right now one born of much activism by those who've been historically left on the outside and let's face it their goodwill and overextended patience too as a theater community it's incumbent on us to understand the necessary work of identifying barriers to access bringing those barriers down piece by piece learning to recognize the disparities between the inside experience and the outside perception 
and to listen across differences, to seek out a better, more compassionate way of working together, being together. For me, any impenetrable institutional structures of the arts club and the and the and the and the playhouse. Um, and I mean, this is our generation. It's our generation's gift and curse to the next generation. Is we just all looked around and went, okay, well, we got to make it happen. And- next time, our final episode. There's really something, something else, we should talk about when it comes to the past, the future. For this particular episode, a big thank you to Marcus Youssef, Marcus Mosley, Lavina Fox, Omari Newton, Peter Cathy White, Ashley Corcoran, Bill Millard, Marcia Sibthorpe, Stephanie Hargraves, Robert Bennett, Philip Bernard, Kim Collier, Catherine Shaw, and Anno Shirani. A special thank you to the Sojourners for letting us share their music. Marcus Mosley is joined by Kari Wendell McClellan and Will Sanders. This Is Something Else is produced by the Arts Club Theatre. It's been written, directed, and hosted by yours truly, Andrew Kushner. My podcast assistant with research dramaturgy and EDI is Priti Daliwal. Sound design and editing by Kevin Galt. Original music by The Golden Age of Wrestling. Hi, I'm Ashley Corcoran, Artistic Director of the Arts Club Theatre Company. And I'm Peter Cathy Watt, the Executive Director at the Arts Club. This is something else. Consciously Eclectic Histories of the Arts Club is generously supported by ITC Construction Group, BMO Financial Group, KPMG, BFL Canada, and longtime patron Lee Grills. We would also like to thank the Canada Council for the Arts, the BC Arts Council, and the City of Vancouver for their ongoing support. And of course, it goes without saying that not just this podcast, but every production created by the Arts Club requires collaboration and teamwork across our organization. From our development team that connects with our amazing donors and community partners, allowing us the opportunity to fund projects such as this, to our marketing and guest services departments that ensure our audiences are able to access the work, to our admin and finance department that supports all of our activities, and to our production department who learned a whole new way of creating great art in order to record and prepare these podcasts. To our artistic department who welcomes and hosts the incredible freelance artists with whom we are so lucky to collaborate. And to our education department that finds innovative ways to connect our audiences with the content we are creating. We are so grateful to work with the passionate, curious and determined staff at the Arts Club. This is truly a collaborative effort that takes people and resources and, of course, the support from donors and subscribers, people like you. If you've liked what you've heard and are interested in supporting more new works and local artists at the Arts Club, please visit artsclub.com and consider making a tax-deductible gift.